Over the next few weeks, we'll be focusing on the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. 24 hours that really did change the world. The sermon series is based on a a book by a man called the Reverend Adam Hamilton. He's a Methodist minister in the States and uh, the minister of one of the largest Methodist churches there. Um, And this book, this sermon series is designed to help us to, to meditate on those final hours of Jesus' life, to think about what happened from moment to moment. And as a sort of summary here, we can see a map of Jerusalem in the time of Jesus. And the Last Supper, which we'll focus on tonight, happened there in the bottom left-hand corner. Jesus and his disciples shared what was probably a Passover supper together. They then walked down the Kidron Valley at about half past eleven that night to the Garden of Gethsemane, where they spent time praying together. Then afterwards, uh, you'll remember Jesus was betrayed by Judas and arrested and taken to the, to the, uh, the Sanhedrin uh, and to the high priests to be tried. He was condemned there and passed on to the Roman authorities, tried again, and you'll remember the crowd that called for Barabbas to be set free and not for Jesus. He was tortured and humiliated by a small garrison of Roman soldiers and then led out to Golgotha to be crucified. So in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, he probably didn't sleep. He spent time sharing a meal with some friends, was arrested, tried, tortured, and crucified. He went from Supper with his friends in the upper room to being buried in a stranger's tomb. In Mark chapter 4 verse 13 we, we learn that Jesus sent his disciples to go on ahead of him and prepare a place for him to share the Passover with them. He gave them specific instructions, if you'll remember. Go into the city, he said, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. I don't know if you notice anything about this picture, but none of these people carrying a jar of water on their heads are men. Because in Jesus' day, a man carrying a jar of water would be a strange sight. It was woman's work to carry water. It would indicate that that man was a slave, and probably the slave of a wealthy individual. The disciples were to follow the slave to the owner of the house, and inquire about where they should share their meal together. As a part of this book by the Reverend Adam Hamilton, I have a DVD in which he's visited some of these traditional sites. So I invite you just to have a look at the traditional site of the Last Supper in Jerusalem. The entire city of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans, as Jesus had predicted, 40 years after his death. With this in mind, let's go to the next one. This is the traditional location of the upper room. This building was provided for sale more than a thousand years after the time of Christ. It's a fascinating place, perhaps the size of the actual upper room. It's thought by some that the upper room where Jesus gave his last supper is the same upper room where 120 disciples were gathered on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit shot out upon them. The room would have been 
the guest room was a wealthy individual living in Jerusalem, one who was apparently a follower of Jesus. Now let's consider how. You'll have to excuse my editing of the video. He just stops halfway through some sentences, I'm afraid. It's interesting to note, though, don't you think, that 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 upper room where Jesus and his disciples shared their last meal was probably the home of a fairly wealthy individual. Someone who not only owned a multi-story house in the city, and a popular city to live in at that, but he was also someone who had slaves. Which makes it especially interesting that in John's Gospel, even though there would have been a slave available, John tells us that Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. We often get so caught up in the fact that Jesus washed their feet that we don't notice the verses that come before that. Jesus, John writes, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from the table, took off his outer robe, and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. I don't know if you catch the gravity of those words, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, knowing that he had come from God and was going to God, Jesus dressed up as a slave and washed the feet of his disciples. A strange and unnecessary thing to do in a household that already had slaves. But it's the kind of thing prophets do, isn't it? In this Last Supper meal, we'll see how Jesus acts as prophet, priest, and king. And his prophetic act is to dress up like a slave and wash the feet of his disciples. We'll remember the prophets doing crazy things in the Old Testament, running around naked, Ezekiel, in chapter 4, instructed to lie on his left side for 390 days, and then after that's over to lie on his right-hand side for 40 days. Jesus, in this prophetic act, reminds us of the verse from Isaiah, Isaiah 49, verse 16. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. In the days of Isaiah, that would have been a sign of someone being a slave, of being owned by somebody of absolute submission. God, in this prophetic act, makes himself our slave, bowing down to us, offering himself us in his most humble state. Crucifixion, which Jesus will meet in the last 24 hours of his life, was the mode of punishment for slaves and the lowest of society. And that was the death that Jesus would suffer the crucified God. As prophet, Jesus is opening up to us the inner heart of God and God's love for us. Having washed his disciples' feet, Jesus and the disciples share the Passover meal together. And I had the privilege of sharing with you in your Seder meal last year, in which you ate various symbolic foods the bitter herbs to remind us of slavery in Egypt. The, uh, I don't know if we had the, the sweet apple mixture that reminded us of the sweetness of redemption. 
But a puzzling thing comes to light if you read your Bible carefully. Because according to John's Gospel, Jesus' final meal with his disciples took place on Wednesday and his crucifixion on Thursday. Whereas in the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, Jesus shares his last supper with his disciples on Thursday and is crucified on Friday. So on the day of preparation, John tells us Jesus was crucified and that's the day on which the Passover lambs were slaughtered for the Passover meal. And so this Passover meal begins to have a kind of double meaning for us as we reflect on what it meant to the Jewish people. I have a video from Rabbi Amy Katz who explains a little bit about what the Passover means to the Jewish people. The Passover is celebrated once a year, and it's a classification when the Jewish people remember their story. The meal takes them back over 3,000 years ago to a time when God delivered their forebears from slavery in Egypt. This is my friend Rabbi Amy Katz describes the meaning of the Passover Seder. So the Seder meal, I don't know how you're supposed to really say it. Americans seem to say Seder. I think South Africans might, might say Seder or something funny. 
But the, that meal that people shared was a memory of being freed from slavery in Egypt. It was the moment that formed the Jewish people into a nation. And you remember Moses asked the Pharaoh to, to let the people go. And Pharaoh said, it rhymes with go. Pharaoh said, I didn't hear you. Pharaoh said, no. So Moses said, let the people go. And Pharaoh said, no. There were ten horrible plagues. Water turned to blood. Moses said, go. And Pharaoh said, you're worse than Methodists. There was a plague of frogs. Moses said, go, and Pharaoh said, that's better. There was a plague of lice and gnats, and Moses said, go, and Pharaoh said, there were flies, there were diseased livestock, unhealable boils, hail, thunder, locusts, and darkness. And every time Moses said, go, Pharaoh said, that's right. And so at the Seder meal, people remembered the story of being slaves in Egypt. And the one final, most terrifying plague of all, the death of the firstborn in each household, was the final plague that twisted Pharaoh's arm enough for him to say yes. And one thing that the Israelites had to do was to sacrifice the Passover lamb that evening and smear some of its blood on their doorposts. And the angel of death would pass over their houses. And the people in those houses would be spared the consequences of Pharaoh's disobedience. The next morning, weeping in the streets, the Pharaoh said, go. And the Israelites escaped. And so as we see John's account of Jesus' crucifixion, happening on the day of preparation, the day when the Passover lamb was sacrificed, I think, is John's poetic way of reminding us that Jesus is the Passover lamb that sets us free from Egypt. Jesus is the Passover lamb sacrificed to save us from our sins. And so if Jesus acts as prophet in this meal, he also acts as priest not only in offering a sacrifice for us, but in being the very sacrifice that reconciles us to God and sets us free from sin. Finally, in this meal, Jesus also acts as king. As he takes the cup and shares it with his disciples, he hints at his kingship, and I imagine these words as the words of a king preparing for battle. Truly I tell you, he says in verse 17, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. I see this image of a king who knows that despite the battle ahead of him the next day, there will be victory. And he will drink the fruit of the vine again. But only when his authority is properly established. So as prophet priest and king. Jesus leads us through this final meal, giving us hope 
for the future. So as Jesus shares this meal, he reconciles us to himself and to God. You note that he shares this meal with a bunch of disciples who will betray him in the next 24 hours. He will die almost alone on the cross. He shares this meal even with Judas, who will sell him for 30 silver coins. But in this meal, our frailty is healed. We are reconciled to God. So I invite you, as you think about this Passover meal, to think about the way you share meals with your friends and family. Do you tell and retell the story of how God has set you free from slavery to sin and the consequences of it? I would encourage you in the next few weeks of Lent to perhaps set aside a meal with your family or friends for that very purpose, for the purpose of talking about what God has done and what God is doing. I love the symbolism of the meal, where people take bitter herbs and remind themselves of the bitterness of slavery. Perhaps next time you put a lot of mustard on your sandwich, remember some of the bitterness in your life that God has rescued you from. Next time you enjoy dessert, remember the eschatological hope that Jesus gives us as he says, I will never drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it in the kingdom. After they shared this meal, Jesus and his disciples moved out of the upper room and took a 15-minute walk down to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus would pray. And we'll hear about that next week. Amen.